You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Hang around after the sermon for more information about Mission Ridge Church. Sermon notes for this message or any of our other messages can be found through our website, missionridge.church. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy the message. So we are into a brand new series. We'll be in this series for five weeks. Uh, This is actually a staff photo of Logan and I going at it during Sermon Club. (laughs) Apropos, uh, he did misspell pear and bowls. Other than that, it's primo. But uh, so each year, last year we started something brand new. We started a tradition, uh, and it's not really a tradition until the second year, but uh, we said, hey, we're going to keep doing this. Uh, So there there are roughly 40 parables, 42, it just depends on the the, uh, theologian that you talk to, but at least 40 parables. Some of them are are repetitious between different... uh, Gospels, so they're not all unique, um, but the different authors will highlight different things because they have a different message, and so uh, so sometimes we will pay attention to that. And uh, but it's our intention to just uh, over the next five weeks to, t- to talk through seven parables because they're, they're such a big part of the way Jesus communicated about His kingdom. What does it look like for us to live? a part of the kingdom that he has established through the church and continues to establish through the church. What are we supposed to live out here in Missoula? And that's why we're looking at what we're looking at. We've talked about this before. There's this uh, hermeneutic tool called PARDES. PARDES is a, uh, it's an acronym. Uh, the... Uh, Many times you'll see acronyms used by, um, by the Jews, and, and the acronyms, um, there we go. It's just a, it's a way to, to remember, right? So anytime you see in the scriptures, and Jesus told a parable, we have to understand that Jesus is using a rabbinical t- teaching style a tool, a very particular tool. You know, if I'm over at Bob's house, Bob has all kinds of tools. And, and you know, if Bob's going to grab the roto hammer, I don't, I don't expect him to be using it as a screwdriver, right? Roto hammer is going to, like, do some serious damage, get, taking, removing concrete, you know, whatever. Uh, if, if we're doing this, grabbing the sawzall, you know, we'll, we're not doing... We're not doing fine-tuning work with the sawzall. We're, we're, we're doing major destruction, right? I don't know if you have ever used a sawzall. They're amazing pieces of equipment. Um, great for tearing down walls, all that kind of stuff. And so when Jesus grabs a very particular tool and his disciples sharing with us through the gospel, saying, hey, Jesus is picking up this tool. We have to pay attention to what this tool does and how, and how it works. And so... 
That's why we share this each, each year. Uh, it's in your bulletin, the definitions in your bulletin. We've talked about this before. Um, know this, that when you read a parable, the very surface level, the, the thing that as you read the parable, you go, oh, this parable is about X, Y, and Z. That is the basic understanding of the parable. And anything else from the remez and the drosh and the sod all depend on that basic understanding. The drosh and, and the sod in particular, they don't change that basic understanding. They add to that understanding. But when Jesus tells a parable, he's going to highlight something. He's going he's to leave hints that should draw us back to the Old Testament, whether it's uh, one of the stories, one of the prophets. Oftentimes, uh, there's multiple remezes in there, and it's make you go search out, which is why we got the, the drosh. It means to seek or to inquire. Go search out and go, what else is Jesus trying to say about this story? Let's look at the next slide. We've shown this graph to you. This is a visual representation of the interconnectedness between all the stories, all the scriptures laid out on a graph line. So on the left-hand side, you have Genesis. On the right-hand side, you have Revelation. And all the books, all the passages in between. And this shows how interconnected the stories are all the way through. The taller arcs reached the farthest ends. So from Genesis to Revelation, there's one great big kind of a brown. I'm not sure what color. I know Logan doesn't know what color it is either, so I'm okay. Uh, but the, the smaller arcs, they're, they're more you know, purple or blue. You know, those are closer together. They're, they're chapters away. Not, not, not books away or testaments away. So, but this is the interconnection. And so when Jesus teaches, he's teaching from the Old Testament all the time. Now, there is a distinction between how Jesus teaches as a rabbi and, and the rest of the rabbis, and, and it's this. The rabbis would tell a parable as commentary on the Old Testament they would tell a parable that would give their opinion on, hey, this is how I see this. And while I find those parables of, of all the other rabbis helpful at times, I don't see them as authoritative. And I want to make this distinction. All the other rabbis in my mind have a small R in front of the rabbi. I mean, not like I wouldn't literally do that. But Jesus teaches authoritatively. He's not just giving you an opinion and throwing an opinion amongst a bunch of other opinions and going, well, let's see how this one plays out. Jesus knows what his kingdom is about because the Father told him. And so the things that he tells us is authoritative. We should, it should absolutely shape our lives. So that's just a, a quick introduction. Um, I want to provide you a little bit of context to this story so that you could hear it the way the first hearers heard it. And so when, when it comes to parables, rabbis oftentimes would compare uh, God to a king. 
This is just a common trope. Oftentimes in their parables, the son in the parable represents Israel. Jesus, I think, changes that sometimes. But this is just a common trope. And finally, um, another common trope within parables, I'm told, is that it's, the setting is found at a wedding feast for the son. So Jesus is not telling a new type of parable here this week. He's telling a parable that's been told over and over and over again. But again, he's going to authoritatively give us his parable. Now, some things to know about wedding feasts. Uh, first of all, um, they were frequently large gatherings. In fact, the, uh, a king would invite the entire, the entire town or the, the entire region. The, uh, the feast would last seven days. This is not something that we're used to. We expect uh, a wedding to last us two, three, four hours, right? If we're not part of the family. It lasts seven days if you are part of the family. Um, the, the king would expect the guests to stay the entire time. And for the guests, this was a, value, this was a big commitment. Can you imagine somebody that you don't really know going, hey, I'm throwing a wedding feast, you're invited, be there, it'll be seven days. That would be hard for most of us. It was even harder in that ancient world. Uh, the last thing that we should know about wedding feasts is that the, the king would provide the clothing. For an event like this, he would provide the clothing. Now, we're used to that from the standpoint that uh, the wedding party, you know, usually someone pays for the entire wedding party to be, you know, wearing dresses and suits and whatnot. In ancient times, the king would provide everyone with their clothes. So with that, that's the context for this week's story. Let's jump into the great feast story found, the parable found in Matthew 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables. That, that is uh, actually one of the most common ways you're going to know that if it's a parable. Because the author's going to tell you. Now, it's not 100% of the time, but they're, they're asking you to pay attention. Uh, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were un willing to come. Now again, remember that, that rabbis are comparing God to this king. This is a common trope. Is it shocking for the rabbi to say, is it shocking for Jesus to say that people were unwilling to come when God the Father says come? That should shock you. If you're part of Israel, that should shock you. That the first hearers, that should amaze them. What do you mean they said no to the king? It should at least make you mad. 
And again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been been invited, behold, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Can you imagine a king that's willing to send out a second invitation when the first one was rejected? But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murders and set their city on fire. Now, we mentioned Ramez, right? This, this hint that should take us back to, to the Old Testament, something in the scriptures, the ancient scriptures that uh, Jesus' followers were used to. What do you think the possible Ramez might be of a king sending out an envoy, that envoy being mistreated by the townspeople, and then that town or those towns are destroyed by fire. Logan came up with this one. Maybe Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe Sodom and Gomorrah. So, Interesting question, what is Jesus saying? What is Jesus using that particular story for in this story? Then he said to his slaves, the the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, inviting to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all that they found, both evil and good, and the wedding was filled with dinner guests. Now that should surprise you. That should shock us. Who filled the wedding feast? Who filled this event put on by God himself? Both the evil and the good. But the king, I, I, I think back to our, our core value of... of uh, unity and diversity. You know, sometimes within Christianity, we're so particular about who we hang out with and who we'll have a conversation with and, and who we'll sit down and, and uh, you know, who, who, who we'll have over to the house, you know, because we don't want people thinking that we're with those people, right? And yet God's kingdom invites in the evil and the good. Maybe when we think about unity and diversity, we th- should think about this particular parable and, and what it says about that. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. Huh. The king provided them. What happened? And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bring, bind him, bind him hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness, in the place that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Wow. So on the one hand, God will 
is not afraid to invite in the evil. But on the, set, the other hand, he has still expectations. We shouldn't forget that. We shouldn't forget that. We should invite people in. That is our job. But we should help them make it to a place that when they stand before the king, the king doesn't send them right back out. Well, this, that's the end of our story. There's a number of things that we should wrestle through when we're reading through this. Why, why were some unwilling? Like, this is God. It's not like God's a bad guy. Like, he's a pretty good guy. Why, why are people unwilling? We should also wrestle with, why did one guy go to his farm and another to his business? What's the distinction that Jesus is making there? What kinds of things is he saying gets in the way of people's willingness to be part of God's kingdom? We have to understand that farming back then isn't like farming today. In fact, farming back then is like some of you have, have a garden in your backyard. Uh, I know uh, the Benjamins have, have a garden and they, they do canning and you know, on the handout, I know you've had, had a that's the kind of farming that Jesus is talking about. It's, it's about survival. It's about making sure that when the harvest is, done, is ready and ripe, you, you harvest it because it may not be ready and ripe if you don't harvest it, if you don't get to it soon enough. I think that's what the distinction Jesus is making. The one is, the, this guy is over here, the farmer, he's just... He's going to his farm just to survive. He's focused on survival. He doesn't have time for the kingdom because if I focus on the kingdom, I may not survive. The other guy goes to his business, though. I think that person is more concerned about thriving. The kingdom's going to get in the way of, of me excelling, of me beating my competition, of me you know, making sure that I could go on vacation where I want to go vacation this year, of, of buying the right kind of car, of, of having the right kind of house. And for some, thriving is what's going to get in the way of them engaging in the kingdom. They're going to choose the dollar bill over the Lord of the universe. But then Jesus says that some of them abused the servants, mistreated them, and killed them. And I think Jesus is clearly condemning the religious leadership of Israel for the prophets and for the number of prophets that died at the hands of their own people. And that probably speaks to people that they want a kingdom. They just want a different kind of kingdom. They want to have their own set of rules. They want to have their, the kingdom work the, the, the way they want to. And when the prophets come along and say, hey, guys, you should probably pay attention to what's going on here. Uh, we're missing the boat. God has some things to say about how we're handling the way we worship and the way we treat the poor and the way we love our neighbor and, and those kinds of things, the way we live out the values of the kingdom. 
God has something to say about that. And when, when that happens, some people will be like, get away from me. Or worse. Or worse. But I want to go back to the guy that, 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 that makes it in. The guy that somehow makes it into the wedding feast, but he's wearing the, the wrong clothes. John seems to provide some commentary on this. Remember that graph of, the, of all the scriptures and the interconnectedness between all the scriptures? Well, there seems to be a connection between this story found in Matthew 22 and what we see in Revelation 19. Speaking of the wedding feast of the Lamb, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, let's go back to that whole idea that, that it's the king that provides the clothing. Right? Let's not lose, let's not lose sight of that because otherwise we could go, well, it's, it's my righteous acts. And, you know, and we could get into this game of comparing our righteous acts one to the other. Like, I'm way more prepared for the wedding feast than you are. Right? I mean, that's a temptation. That's, that's the mental leap that we could potentially make if we forget that, that, these, that this clothing that we're wearing at the last supper or at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the wedding feast of the Son of God, have been given to us. Paul says in Genesis 3.27, and these are not in your notes, um, and won't show up on the screen either. Um, but, but he says this, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Galatians 3.27, For all of you who, who were baptized into Christ have, been, have clothed yourselves with Christ. If you're reading through Romans with, with those of us who are in life-transforming groups, you'll know that Paul over and over and over again will tell us that, that righteousness, a right standing before God, is a gift, and it's a gift of grace. We, we can't earn it. We don't get through the door through our own works. And we're not sitting at the wedding feast of the Lamb based upon our own merit. It is an absolute gift. And, and maybe that's why when we invite, we invite the evil and the good. Because how would we know how different we are from that other person? Like, like how, how do we, how, I, you know, we're not, as a people, we're not very accurate judges of ourselves. We're way, we're way better at judging other people than, than, than self-reflection, self-inspection. We're way more honest towards other people's faults 
Which is why we notice the speck in their eye and miss the log in our own. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. In Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, while, <clears throat> while the works that we do don't save us, once we are saved, there are works to be done. There are things that you and I should be living out because of Christ and what he has done in our life and because we are a part of the kingdom. This is why I think in the parable, Jesus says that the man, when questioned by the, queen, questioned by the king, said nothing. Why are you not in the clothes that I gave you? Why have you not received the grace that has been freely offered you? I think is the question that the person will be wrestling with if they find themselves in the same situation. Standing before God, having known about Christ, having, having received an invitation to receive grace, but going, no, that's, that's not for me. I think about the people that we bring in sometimes, our friends that join us, and, 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 the, and they hang out, and they, they show up to church sometimes. And, uh, and I'll have conversations with some people about the grace of God, and, and they just never quite commit to receiving that grace. They've had the invitation. It's been offered to them brand new clothing that they could put on, so much freedom. It, it's not like the, the man that was out in the streets has better clothing than what the king could provide, right? It's not like he's got a better set of threads. And it's not like our life is better without the grace of God. It's significantly better with the grace that we experience because of Christ. Well, that's, uh, that's our story. There's, there's another connecting point to the, to the Old Testament. Actually, maybe a few more. We'll, we'll talk about some in uh, footnotes. But ask yourself, has there ever been a story in the Old Testament to where a king has a feast, it lasts for seven days, he sends out an invite to someone, that person rejects that invite, other people were invited in, and it led to their salvation. And maybe the salvation of an entire nation of people. Maybe Esther chapter 1. Maybe Esther chapter 1. Because I don't know how to say this king's name. Uh, king A. We'll go with King A. Uh, king A, he, he first he throws a feast for 180 days. That was for his royals. Can you imagine, like, you're in a really good mood to throw a, a, a six-month party. And then he throws in uh, a second feast for seven days. That's for the common people. 
And he invites his wife in, Queen Vashti. I could say that name. But she refuses the invitation. And so she gets banished. And a number of ladies are invited in to replace her, to potentially replace her. And it's quite a long process. Um, I'm sure someone other than me really enjoys reading that kind of story. And uh, I can see Jen's face. Oh, what, what an amazing process. Yeah, I didn't care. Um, <laughs> but Esther ends up replacing Queen Vashti and leads to chapter 2, Esther chapter 2, leads to the salvation of the people. What is Jesus doing connecting these stories? This story is about salvation. Jesus sometimes was asked, Rabbi, what good thing must I do to be saved? And we got a parable. We got a story. Maybe this is our gospel message for our friends. Maybe this is a way to share the gospel with our, with our friends when they have questions about what does it mean to be part of what God's doing? Implications. We actually have several. Uh, there were just so many things that just popped out of this story. Maybe you've got some too, but, but here are a few of my own. Although the kingdom's invitation is salvation, many will reject it. They'll, they'll reject it. They're too concerned about their survival. They're, they're too concerned about their, you know, thriving. Or they just, they don't want that kind of salvation. They want a different kind of salvation. They... They don't want God to be God of their lives. Or the things that he offers, the, the, the grace that he offers, it's just too good to be true. Many will reject it. Second implication, the kingdom comes to those who are not expecting it. How many of you have had a friend say, I've just done... Too many bad things for God to accept me. Too many bad things. Uh, I've, I've felt that way before. That was a long time ago. Two weeks ago. No. Uh, 20 plus years ago. But how many people have said that? And yet, the kind of people that God invites in, first and foremost are the evil, as crazy as that sounds, crazy good. Paul, quoting the Psalms in Romans 4, 7, and 8, said, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have, who have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not take into account.
Who does God invite in to his kingdom? People that need their sins forgiven. Plain and simple. Paul says, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, at the wedding feast, we're not going to be comparing our righteous acts to each other. The comparison game, we'll, we'll be so past that. We're going to be just so excited to be there. I think what, what we'll truly be in awe of is just how amazing, how amazing God's grace is. Wow. You look radiant covered by God's grace. Wow, you look amazing. I mean, don't, don't we like to like kind of, you go to a wedding and, and you're waiting for the, the, the bride, which is always a long time. And, and so what else is there to do but to pay attention to what everybody's wearing? Man, you clean up. Nice job. I think we're going to do that like a billion times over. Like, <laughs> you look so good. Wow, the righteousness of Jesus looks amazing on you. I'm looking forward to that day. The kingdom comes to those who are not expecting it. Um, another implication, once in the kingdom, there's work to do. There's work to do. And again, I'll go back to Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I don't know if you notice this, but every kingdom in the world has to have its workers. Work was always part of the equation. Go look at Genesis 2. There's work involved. Long before the fall, always work involved. We were created for work. We should do our part. This kingdom is no different. Next implication. It costs you to be in the kingdom. It costs you. It costs the people their, their time. Like, I don't have seven days of vacation this year. I don't know about you. But I don't, I don't have that. For some of us that do have it, we're not sure we want to spend it that way on a wedding feast. Doesn't sound like fun, a bunch of people all clamoring around tables. That sounds like fun for two hours. It costs you to live, it costs you to live in any kingdom. I mean, have you noticed that we pay taxes around here? <laughs> it costs you to live in this kingdom. It costs you to live in any kingdom. It's no longer my time. It's no longer my survival. It's no longer my thriving. It's no longer my values. When you're within the kingdom, Christ is supposed to be over all of those things. We're supposed to give to him our, our survival. We're supposed to give to him our thriving. 
We're supposed to give to him our time. Now, he's, he's very gracious with all those things, and he, and he knows that we need all those things. He, he knows that we need to survive. He created us with survival instincts. He knows that we need to thrive. It's built within us. He knows that we need time. He knows what our family needs. If we'll just trust him. Because you know what? Some people, they want the benefit of the kingdom without the cost of the kingdom. They want the benefit of marriage without the cost of marriage. They want the, the benefit of righteousness without the cost of righteousness. They want the benefit of heaven without wanting to live for heaven now, making heaven available to others through the way they live. This kingdom comes with a cost. And finally, I know you were waiting for it, the last one. The kingdom moves forward through imitation. In 2,000 years, that has not changed. At one point, we were the people on the outside and someone else invited us in. We didn't get there because we were running towards it. It came looking for us. God's kingdom came looking for us through people. Who's going to enter the kingdom because we're inviting? And that's scary. That challenges us. We could face rejection. The story says that's going to happen. We're going to face abuse. The story says it's going to happen. But this is how the kingdom moves forward. Still, 2,000 years later. So those, those are the implications that I saw in the story. This is a complex story. I just, I love what I see here. Um, Jesus is amazing. I don't know if you know that or not. Uh, and, and what's really cool, and we'll talk about some of this in footnotes, but so many other things you could really take away from this story. Uh, we're going to invite you guys, instead of doing next steps, we're going to talk about how to have a discipleship conversation about this story. The great thing about having discipleship conversations, you don't have to actually read the story to the person. You could just tell the story from memory because that's what people did for thousands of years before the printing press. And, and it still works. I've actually done this with my boys on the, on the back patio, uh, talking to them and, hey, you guys remember this story? Let's look at some of these. Um, let's look at how to have this discipleship conversation. So first and foremost, tell the story. We have to tell it. If you want to go grab your Bible app or your Bible or your notes or, or Google it or whatever, I mean, you could tell the story a lot of different ways. But have a discipleship conversation. Starts with telling the story. Starts with the scriptures, always. We're not really having a discipleship conversation if we're not telling the story. 
if we're not sharing the scriptures. We're just having the spiritual conversation, maybe a good conversation, but it's not a discipleship conversation if we're not actually talking about the words of God. Secondly, ask the question, who do you identify with this story and why? We ask this question all the time because people can answer it. It's in our curriculum on a weekly basis because every person walking through the door, regardless of how much access to the Bible they've had in their lives, they could answer the, this question. It's who you identify with. Did you identify with the slave that's going out to inviting? Do you identify with the person who's too busy? Are you inviting with the person that's new to the party? Do you identify with the person who refuses the garments? Who do you identify with in the story? Uh, hopefully, in this case, not the son. Um, what do you learn about the kingdom through this story is, is another question that you can ask. What, what do you learn? Again, we ask this question in our cur- curriculum because regardless of how much exposure you've had to the Bible, you can answer the question, what do I learn? <laughs> what stands out to you? Is it that many will reject the kingdom, that evil need to be invited to, that there's work to be done? What do you learn? And finally, what do you sense God leading you to do differently based upon this story? You know what? Asking these kinds of questions and asking people to think for themselves, it's kind of a new muscle, uh, asking good questions. Uh, Sometimes Christians are known for telling people how to live their lives instead of exposing them to to who Jesus is and, and what he offers and asking really great questions. Maybe you could come up with better questions, but asking questions is a powerful tool. And I've noticed this. I mean, as a dad, if I tell my kids, hey, you need to do X, Y, and Z, about three out of four times, they'll do one of the three. Somehow, though, when God tells them, man, the percentage goes way up. Super powerful when we invite God to speak into someone's life and for someone to have that conversation with God. That's why we ask the questions the way that we ask within our care groups so that people can think for themselves, they can engage with God themselves, they can, we can teach them that, you know, ask good questions of, about the scriptures when they engage with it. That's why we do what we're doing. My friends, Jesus is establishing a kingdom. And his kingdom works in ways that some would not expect. Sometimes I'm totally surprised by how Jesus wants to do things. We, we come to these parables to learn about his kingdom, change our expectations, and go live in partnership with Christ. And that's why we're doing this series. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a church focused on relational discipleship and located in Missoula, Montana. If you are in the Missoula area, we would love to have you come and join us for worship. Service times, location, and all kinds of other fun stuff can be found on our website 
missionridge.church. You can connect with Mission Ridge Church through Facebook or Instagram, so give us a like or follow. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for tuning in.